0: Okay, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 176 with my guest uh, and friend, Quent Rose. This is Quent's second time on the podcast, and we pick up kind of where we left off. We talk about uh, his experiences growing up black, um, talking about what it's like to be gay um, in his community, just what it means to be nice, what is empathy versus kindness. I always enjoy talking with Quint. He is a real thinker. Um, you know, a lot of people I run into, including myself, our thoughts are, you know, a mile wide and a foot deep. But Quint is, um, he digs deep on a lot of stuff, and I just really enjoy talking with him. Aside from that, he's an amazing pan player, <laughs> like, like a virtuoso pan player, musical theorist, educator, uh, and he is a pan tuner, uh, basically self-taught. Uh, also living in Brooklyn, and I've seen him sort of resurrect old pans that look like they should be in the dumpster, uh, and he brings them back to life and um, gets them back out in the world. So anyway, big fan of Quent, and I hope you are too. I hope you enjoy, enjoy this conversation. I hope you're doing well, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Okay, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Quent Rose. Take care. Bye. All right. Take a swig of the potion here. All right, Quint, Rose, we're gaveling this to order, buddy. Okay, okay. Whether you like it or not. Um, Okay. How you doing, man? I'm pretty good. Well, yeah, I think think, think we need to stop asking that question of others for like the next six months. Maybe just a moratorium on the phrase, how are
1: you doing? I mean, I guess, but it's it's useful. Otherwise, in American culture, what do you say to somebody to greet them? Um, the act we is we just got to anyway. We got to have a new one
0: like, "Hello, I know you're probably shitty." Like
1: No. Like, start it's, with it's that. Part you know? the, it's, the, it's part of the American dream. It's one of those habits. To yeah. live in a world of people shit where they, they don't though. It's all an act. In my whole life, I have had one specific statement follow me and I've never followed it which is be nice, be nice. I've had so many people my whole life, be nice. I taught preschool for three years. I never allowed any student to use the term be nice. Why? Because it's an act. Oh. It's literally an act. The definition of being nice means however you happen to feel, be nice. We try to make it benevolent and say it's, it's like kindness. no. When you're asking someone to be kind, you're asking them to behave and feel empathy, right? When you're asking them to be nice, you're asking them to portray empathy, even though you're seething yeah, inside.
0: I like that you, you make the distinguish there because being kind is an act of empathy. I mean, it does like, but have you heard the phrase, I mean, have you ever done much traveling to like, the South, like Texas, Georgia, Alabama.
1: Yeah, I used to go to North Carolina once a year for like a couple of years as a, a teenager. And but I have a lot of friends from down south.
0: There's also like it's a similar vibe, like there's a there's a phrase. It's called Minnesota Nice. Um like yeah. like that the the sort of demeanor in the South, for example, is like everything's like you call everybody Mr. Mr. Josh. Yeah. And everything's like, you know, yes, sir. Everything's very polite, very kind on the, on the surface. And and again, not everybody is, is an asshole, but by and large, the sort of baseline is sort of like, yes, sir, Mr. Josh, like right there. And then in, in in Massachusetts or not Massachusetts in Minnesota, it's a different sort of, um, I want to say deference. There's like a, like we love you. Welcome here. Like everything's very calm, like very Kind and welcoming all the time all the time kind of okay. like you could run somebody's dog over and they'll be just oh, well how you doing I, you know, have you seen the weather recently i'm really sorry to hear about my dog you know like <laughs> it's just like a weird cultural thing and it's called okay. minnesota, minnesota nice i'm definitely sort of painting with a broad broad brush here but
1: i got i know i got you so the same assumption that all new yorkers are aggressive and, and angry right. people that right. don't want to make eye contact
0: right you yeah. just walk by a million people and it's perceived as being rude um you know, if you, if you walked and talked like that in Dover, Ohio, where I'm from, or in Trinidad even, like, if you, like, one of the things that, I've, uh, Kendall and I talked about this, and I didn't, I start, I notice it now, it's like my dad was, was in a wheelchair, so I see wheelchair ramps now really? everywhere I look, you know, and Kendall told me this, that, that, was, yeah. that he, um, was, how did he say it, it was something like, he was really bothered when he walks in the room and says goodnight and no one responds in American culture. Um, and now when I go like, when I'm in Trinidad, um, everybody responds when somebody says good morning, good day, or good night, everybody. And, you know, in Ohio, it's not that people like there's a, there's a, the, the, way that we all say hello is like, like you just walk by on the street, you nod, and it's not rude if you don't respond hello or good night back. Um, but in Trinidad or in parts of Brooklyn, <laughs> you Which bet you of that. yeah it's, it's anyway so yeah, to me it's interesting it's like, to see how different pockets of the country
1: see and act i've been and- trying to i've been trying to behave like a sociologist in the last couple of years i find that the you know all the peaks in psychology and all that stuff what they do is they kind of they force you to localize your understanding to an experience that's specific i was trying to figure out what are the real broad experiences that are happening that that are becoming rules of our community and rules of our culture without realizing that they're reasonable. like that being nice, like the way that we say hello or goodbye. Um, and I've always noticed that in growing up, the school that I went to growing up was mostly West Indian teachers. And when I say mostly, I mean all, they were all West Indian teachers. So I didn't see an American or even white teacher until I was in the eighth grade where I had some weird program where they would take students to Stuyvesant. Um, and take classes. And even then I had the same weird cultural shots. I would walk into classrooms and say, good morning. Good afternoon. Mm-hmm. And it took me a while to learn, Oh yeah, this is not, this is not normal for like classroom culture right. Cause well, in the home. Yeah. You know, Ever. You never walk right. into someone's home and see another human being alive in it and not greet them. And then to not have it said back, um, The sentiment that I kind of inherited from the older people that raised me were, well, is specifically that the greeting is not just well wishing on someone. The greeting is that I acknowledge that you exist. It's just that. It's just that in that moment, I vocally acknowledge that you exist. So to say it back is like verification that you acknowledge it. Can ask, when someone doesn't say it, it comes with the gravitas of, can, you didn't acknowledge my existence.
0: Can I ask a question? And I, and I'm and again, I'm asking out of ignorance here, and you can tell me if I'm anywhere sure. close to on base here, but the, 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 the tenor of discussion right now in society about inclusion and the way we talk about different populations of people who are served mm-hmm. or underserved or privileged or underprivileged, all of those things, um, there is a sense that I get that, like, in the caribbean culture the the if your baseline the baseline there is acknowledgement of existence like you just said like that's the sort of foundation upon people are 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 dealing that's not something that ever crosses my mind when i say hello to somebody or somebody says hello to me and i'm curious for you if this is something that you could that you think is tied to the like the the colonialism all of that stuff for hundreds and hundreds of years where people literally were looking at cultures and people and not even no not even like pretending like they don't exist and um like it, how yes. am i projecting
1: here or <laughs> like what no 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 you're not projecting you're observing um, you're, you're observing you're you're noticing this either the conversation or the behaviors between the different people you're just observing it's important that we get away from seeing the differences or the subtle differences in communities as just immediately, like, we're getting too racially charged. I hate using that word because we're all Mm -hmm. one human race, but we're getting, like, sensitive to it too much. Um, I think that you should always consider that your heart about this is to seek understanding in what is different, what is the same. Like, you're always seeking an answer. So you personally or anyone that you know of that's always in this, why do you all do this? You know, like, what is this about? Like, why do you eat doubles with your hands instead of on a plate? Like, I don't wonder about there?
0: that. I'm fine with that. that. That 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 makes total sense to me. Are you kidding me?
1: But it could be <laughs> subtle things like yeah. that that, yeah. that you're, you are not new to, but someone else may be new to that they're seeking an answer for. That is the heart of how we avoid all of the racial crazy. Because then we seek to understand, well, why is this normal in your culture as opposed to this is abnormal in your culture? So, you're not projecting ever. Just never. I never even consider it. Oh, um, I appreciate that, but it's, it doesn't feel that way sometimes. So, I but well, I appreciate feeling, it. yeah, feeling is you know law de facto, law in, in action. <laughs> yeah. I got you. Yeah, yeah. I got you. Um, as far as that dichotomy, maybe in the in the Caribbean communities, I think that there's no way to avoid the spillover of colonialism at all. You can't. You can't separate it and say, well, this thing is African and this thing is colonial. Um, One of my religious practices is kind of blended between uh, Judeo Christian systems and West African systems. Uh, When I first got involved in it, it was very, very like blended. You'd say Christian prayers and then African prayers right next to each other Mm -hmm. um, in the same ceremony. And at first, I'd be like, wait, what are they doing? Are they trying to channel two different types of vibration? You know, you try to go through some kind of like, quantum physics in the mind until you realize no, this is what the various people were doing to be honorable to the various traditions that they had. Mm. right? But in doing so, the thing that they now are for hundreds of years is this mix of both. So there's not a separation between um, the African and the Euro-American experience. When it comes to that need for acknowledgement, I think that there is less mm, big paradigm okay think of it as I try not to think of everything as two big paradigms but in, in extremes of the bell curve of life mm-hmm. if you think of two paradigms of, of life we're either thriving or surviving and thriving is on one end of the bell curve and surviving is on the other okay in that the people in the in the middle are are afraid of either end okay they're afraid of how much it takes to thrive <laughs> They're afraid of what mm-hmm. it's going to feel like to, to starve. You know, maybe say starving and they're, say that, and starving. they're
0: afraid of how quickly you can go from one end to the other, from one to the other in twenty-four this. hours or less. Yeah, like let it's, say
1: something yeah. in one child support payment, right? Okay. <laughs> so let's let's say that instead that the people in the middle are surviving, and then they're starving and thriving. So a lot of times, people of color through the many systems of of ex- Exploitation and history, colonialism, genocide, whatever the, the causes have been pure hatred, ignorance, um, selfishness, whatever they've been they've had a tendency to put people with a lot of melanin on the starvation side. Mm-hmm. The people, okay, so we can th- consider that that happens in the f- 16, 17, 18, 1900, Okay. Now we're into the 2000s. And while I may not feel the whip of a slave owner on my back that that's you know it's not happening to me i may notice how difficult it is for me to get alone (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) right because all of those things were designed or kind of put into place by one set of people and then taught to another set of people to make their life easier that sounds really brutal to think that slavery was done that way but i think that like all of those things that we think of, of like systems of oppression Instead of seeing it specifically as hatred for one group of people caused you to behave this way, I, I always tend to see it as your fear of something happening to your own group is manifesting as hatred for this other group. Mm. So even those subtle things, I know some people that, that, you know, grew up in a very colonialized Judeo-Christian household that are not that are now, like, very radical Rastafarians— <laughs> like, mm-hmm. hey, make a left turn on the on the highway. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it's a matter of what part of that culture you claim, or what part you understand. Because if you were, for instance, were to grow up thinking of you know the head nod as you are acknowledging another human being being alive, the likelihood of you deflecting it is a lot. There's <laughs> a whole different percentage mm-hmm. than someone that's told, yeah, yeah, nod at somebody if they see you, honey. It's okay. You know the gravitas of the the behavior is really different, and I think in a black community, this idea that you need to hold a public code of respect mm-hmm. for your safety, okay? totally you know mm-hmm. I, I think it's a little different in in predominantly white communities where a lot of it has to do with like don't embarrass your family, don't embarrass yourself, <laughs> kind of thing that may be slightly more prevalent as opposed to when you go outside, you may die based off of how you interact with someone in your own community or how you interact with police or how you interact with someone from another community and mm-hmm. how they interact with the police. So there's always this code of like, keep up the portrayal of being nice being respectful, mm-hmm. you know, when it's the same thing, be respectful. What do you mean? I don't respect you. So I'm behaving the way that I, that I want yeah. to, I curse out because I don't respect you. These things are, I mean, when you say like,
0: when, I don't know, I, I have a real trigger, hair trigger when people are like you know, um, demand trust or they demand respect or they demand like you should respect the the office or respect your elders and and all these things like, I mean I don't go out of my way to like, hold up elders, you must earn my respect, like, but it's a two way street it's a dance and being kind being empathetic requires, it's an act of checking yourself for two seconds and being like, I don't know what it feels like you know I, I I don't have black skin. I'll never have black skin, but I can shut my eyes and through what limited experience I have, in my head play out the scenario that it would be like. You know, I just heard this this study the other day. There's a there's this company that's devising these VR goggles that mm. you can you decide like what color skin tone do you want, and so like. You choose, yeah. like, I want to be Nigerian. So I turn that way up. And then they, they're just like, okay, great. And now you pick a neighborhood you want to walk around in. And so they, they're like, New York City. And so a Nigerian walking around New York City. And basically, you're just walking around, and the people in the video are looking Interrupt. at you in the way that, based on your skin color, right? And they're like, you want to choose a white person. And you can just, you're just soaring <laughs> through town. And, like, nobody, but then as the darker your skin gets, depending on what store you walk into, your skin color could be brown. But if you're black, walking into a store that was owned by a Dominican, like... All of these things are so nuanced and messy, but for me as a white person, if I put those VR goggles on, I think that what they're trying to do is really hit the idea that this stuff is learned, that that racism, all of this stuff is taught to you because somebody told you, oh, be afraid of this person. Or X, Y, and Z. And if you can sort of show people, people need to, it needs to be their idea. You can't tell people they're racist and have them wake up one day and be like, you know what? Yeah, that doesn't they're work. Right. Yeah, You're right. You're right. They have to know, they have to know what that feels like to have a cop look at them funny or to have a store owner just sort of have their little uh, price gun just walking around behind you every time you shop. <laughs> it, you know, doesn't like, work.
1: it doesn't work. Like, I, I, I get into, I don't want to say arguments, but I get into, pointless debates, I guess, (laughs) with very close friends of mine over things of like racial politics, Mm -hmm. gay politics, women's liberation and um, the state of men in the the social climate, like all these different things that currently we're talking about. We're kind of living through Me Too, You Too, (laughs) you know, like Mm -hmm. it's uh, we're living in this kind of climate. So sometimes we get into these conversations. And I find that there is a need to hold on to their personal identity so badly Mm -hmm. that the cognitive dissonance between the ideals they speak about and the life that they're forced to choose to live, they can't do. Um, Straight friends, you know, they think that the the that being, gay is being weaponized against the the black community to lower birth rates. Fine. Please stop telling straight people to have gay kids. They have the straight people need to stop having gay kids. You need to figure out how to do that part for
0: <laughs> Sorry, I never thought about it that way, but that's hilarious. Like your next um, logic is like, all right, well, fine, get your asses to work. <laughs> stop telling yeah, straight you, people to have gay
1: kids. Yeah, that's kind of a that's Seems kind like of an easy fix, line. I mean, right? You know. I mean, that. And if you really want to get away from if you and and, and this is a hardline situation, if you really want to protect the sanctity of marriage, outlaw divorce. Make it a really
0: hard thing to get divorced.
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. Punish by by jail time.
0: Make it a crime. That's what I'm saying. Make it make it something that you really don't want to have to do. Like you are going to have oh, to know what a, that. Hardly, you're going to but mandatory you know, seven years.
1: Oh, well, okay. Well you went a little harder in the paint on, on the, on the, on the time, the sounds no, but listen, uh, I think, I think that for a long time I've seen, uh, I've had friends, you know, commit suicide because they happen to be gay and the parents kick them out their house mm-hmm. and their friends turn their back on them. They're on the football team, on the track team. Everyone, or they were on the dance team and everybody knew they was gay, but whatever so i kind of look at it like i've seen these people go through horrible depression just because of something no one ever saw them do yeah what's
0: the Maybe what's them, what's the appropriate proportional response to that and 7 years right. seems like a small price to pay when you look at i mean I I listen i like, had one of my closest friends in college um you know he didn't uh, I, I can't i mean it, there are many reasons why but i think him being gay and being uncomfortable in his family and being just Bullied at some point in his life, pretty mercilessly. Like I know for a fact, it affected the way he saw the world. It affected the way he drank alcohol. It affected the way he took pills. Like all of those things. And I was, I was close to him. I I played, I played with him for two years straight. And and he was, he's, he was one of my closest. He was the first gay person I ever really knew intimately. Like, and he, I asked him the question I asked you about, like you know, race and saying hello. Like I asked him, what is it? What is being gay? I mean, I was nineteen. I don't. I didn't know. And I asked him, and he he very calmly over beer just told me. And I was like, "Do you look at your boyfriend the same way? Like, how do you look at your boyfriend?" I don't. I just am trying. Like, tell me. And he's like, "How do you look at Stephanie?" <laughs> I, and listen, I, but but it was the type yeah. of relationship I had with somebody where he wasn't going to run screws through because he knew. And yeah. I could, but man, it's not like asking that question and him answering it was easy for him. me but no but 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 he he really he just looked at me and he said well when I roll over in the morning I look at him and I think I'm the luckiest person in the world and kind of yeah the day sucks other stuff sucks but like that's a big relief to start my day that way and I was like oh well that's how I feel about Stephanie so cool like like prop not it wasn't a problem but I that answer that question for me had been answered and I wish there was a VR goggles for that too. Like everybody just needs to be able to get VR goggles on and ask the questions that they feel like they need to ask and have somebody be kind to them when, you know, when that happens. But again, it's trust. I
1: still think you can't just I ask that. You can't ask that
0: question of a total stranger,
1: you know, like you gotta. true. Yeah. But look how much, look how much anxiety is surrounding this particle of his identity. It's the same thing. He identifies that part of himself. As being crucial, mm-hmm. and he's and and because other people have seen it that way, seen it in a certain way, they've held it against him. So now he feels like anxiety about it. He's vulnerable. He's cautious. He's all these other things in his life, just because of the way he's treated over this one thing. I think that of all the people that would understand this would be black people. That this thing that mm-hmm. they feel they have no control over causes the world to, for whatever reason causes some people to just have an inflated reaction to do it for no reason that isn't the same thing it's the same thing with women just because my body has a different set of
0: (laughs) of functionalities yeah there's (laughs) it just is a different
1: yeah i don't have as many my muscles aren't as strong i used to hear this argument that one of the reasons is that women aren't physically as strong as that's one of the reasons that there's so much kind of divide. I mean, talking with some professors that have had this conversation about divide like, on, but, what but in, in what? I con- mean, because
0: on a like factual basis, they're not yes, wrong. But like, but what, what's the con-
1: required
0: brawn? I get, I No, but why? What was I the agree. context? Why would you say? What was the point of saying that about women and men? That's because he
1: was trying to say, because my my argument was, it's a habit of the ruling class to sub, to, to suppress everybody else. That to me is actually the, the root of it. Yeah. And, the, and I thought this other professor said, no, people are intrinsically good, but when you consider that most labor was physically, like most labor was physical, and because women weren't for the most part the stronger part of the species, it made it easier for men who were the stronger physical parts of the species. To dominate the labor force, therefore, set up the system for their benefit. So, I think both of those mm. things are true. But if you are a enlightened person, you may consider that your wife does not want to be trapped in your cave, pregnant all day long, right. cleaning up for you. Right. And and to think, and just just to be clear, I don't have a problem with the traditional household if it works for that household. Sure, yeah. because I think that. 40 hours of a guy a single guy working at a job where he's making enough money in his 40 or 50 hours of work week to sustain himself, a home, a wife, and a child nowadays means you are doing something very stressful and you need to have someone manage your home, especially during the, during a pandemic, you know, where people are okay. trying to go so to work. So most and- housewives, yeah, most housewives are not this. I want to stay home and file my nails and not do anything. A lot of women grew up with the ideology of I need to have a child as a component of my contribution to the family. So they did everything they could to be physically attractive to their husbands, to be sexually available to their husbands. We're going to talk about that, that aspect of it. Keeping a home that was immaculate, almost like a hotel. That's where we get the 50s wife from. Mm-hmm. It seemed like a roly and stepford wives. Mm-hmm. It's like they're, they're like a robot, but it's somewhere in the mixture of that ideal of, you know what? I want things to be easy for everybody. And this is the system that seems to work for a lot of people, mm. right? Even that is part of the trickle down from the thing about colonialism. That was a the idea of um, polygamy or polyandry. I promise you, there were, if it wasn't for the Catholic Church and its influence on early America, there would be a whole lot of sister wives going on. Because there already were a bunch of sister wives going on, they didn't even know they were wives and sisters to each other, which mm-hmm. is the difference. Mm-hmm. Okay, all of those like subtle concepts trickle down; they just become like a habit. You can, you should get married. It's okay if you have someone on the side. It's kind of like a thing that's talked, that's not talked about, but we know exists in male male culture. Why? Because a woman is always afraid of, being, of getting pregnant. That's the mm-hmm. you see what I'm saying. Like yeah. these are things we don't say. But there are a, a unspoken truth that men have for centuries, subtly, unconsciously, without thinking about it, passed it on as a code. This is how life is, guys. Man, I you're, yeah, as you were talking I think in the black
0: community with everything else that we do. As you were talking, there's a book. Um, uh, do you know the the he's a pimp, and but he's an author named Iceberg Slim. Um, and there's it's a there's a the, the one book I read is just called Pimp. Um and he talks a lot. It about, sounds familiar. It's really really good. I I heard about it from a Dave Chappelle special, where he was he probably was probably I've also heard about this. He was just you know just talking about why the relationship, like why certain things in the black community are the way they are, and mm-hmm. um the like he said something in the special, or he was talking about the book, and and like one of he mentions off, and again I I I'm want to be careful here, but like he he says um. One of the reasons uh like black women will stand by their husband, no matter how they treat them, whether it be uh, you know domestic violence or whatever um, but that culture in the community is because it comes from hundreds of years of no matter how bad the the wife at home has it the the man had it way worse, no matter how bad their day was, being in the field being beaten was like and I and he talked about this book and and I read this book and I was just like you know there's a whole underculture of way people act the way people talk to each other the way people treat each other that is so dark and complicated and it like you said before starting in the 1600s yeah. and it's not like you know something happens and a year later there's a change it, it is every minute of every day somebody yeah. subtly be- from one slave owner beating somebody and that guy going home when I say home, going to wherever it was, he was allowed to sleep on that plantation. And those conversations happening between husband and wife or couples that weren't allowed to say it out loud. And then the next day on March 2nd, it happens again. And then March 3rd, 1619, it happens again. And then March 4th. And then here you are December 31st of, of 20 or nineteen sixteen nineteen. 1619. What happens on the new year's Eve party, the same thing, you know, like, and it does that for 400 okay. years. Here we are okay. in 2020. I I think we as people need to work a little harder to understand why. I mean, when people when I when I hear people say "pull yourself up by your bootstraps," I'm like, "Yo, bro, I understand what you're saying, but you need to look at like, well, why are all these black people? Why can't they just get on? You know, why can't they get a job?" I'm like, "Yo, bro, I know what you're saying,
1: I get I hear it." But, the words coming out your mouth, but do you understand the gravity of what you're saying? Right. That it's they, like, not- man,
0: these are. You are you have been alive for 22 years on this earth, and you look at things as if this can all be fixed tomorrow. Like I said, March Never. 1st, 1619, and then March 2nd. These are day after day after day. Yep. So this idea that we're going to solve it tomorrow, and if we don't solve it tomorrow, we failed. It's like, man, it's going to take another 400 years of day after day of just, you know constantly trying to remedy that um, and it happens on that local level like saying good night and responding like those little tiny those are tiny little signals they're little red flares that go up that mm-hmm. sort of tell you how you can act in a room. Kendall talks like I said, Kendall mentions that when he walks into a room at Princeton. Yeah.
1: How you act, that's
0: true. And um, But not just how you act in a room, how you act in a neighborhood. When I walk in a neighborhood in Crown Heights, I don't act the way I act when I walk in a neighborhood in
1: Connecticut. Yeah, the need for code switching is, is the same thing. Because when you talk about the, um, ah, I hate that my memory does not hold on to names well. Um, I had a lecture at City Tech. Um, it was concerning a woman's book. Thank God I read the book. Um, but there's a scene that she writes about. I can't remember if it's like her retelling a story or not, but there's a scene where she writes about um, a little girl and her maid. And it just so happened, I think it was the day Martin Luther King got shot or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the girl and the maid is in the house, um, like crying and weeping to herself. And the little white girl comes in. And this happens to be the the owner's daughter, the the owner, the the boss's daughter, you know, whoever hired her to to clean and to be the house person. And sees the lady crying and tries to console her by saying, oh, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. Um, Now, mind you, the little girl is doing her best to console her caregiver. But this Black woman, of course, is annoyed that I'm back at work working for a bunch of white people and they just shot Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. So she kind of like snaps at the little girl and says, Don't you understand? They kill them. They kill the one person that we, you know, she kind of like rants for a minute or so. And she notices that the little girl now becomes kind of like startled by how, you know, how aggressive she is and begins to kind of tear up. And she immediately has to snap out of it and wipe the tears from her eyes, run to the uh, refrigerator, grab some ice cream, and tell her, come. She said, no, 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 come baby, it's going to be okay. Hug her and, and, and try to calm her down. Because her survival mode wasn't in motion for a second. The, the code switch was, there's the woman that I am at work and there's the woman that I am. Mm-hmm. And strong emotion. Remember the survival and the thrive thing? When you're thriving, you don't care. You can be yourself. If I'm making six million dollars a day, okay. If I'm being, if I'm Bezos's sugar, sugar boy, I don't know, whatever he needs to call me <laughs> to give me a tenth of his income, whatever, bro. Uh, you can find me online. You got Google? I got an Amazon. <laughs> I'm am the only Quentin on the planet. Hit me on the Cash okay, App. <laughs> hit me on the Cash App for a one-time, okay. <laughs> one-time payments are fine. You just let me know. i open to fans, We'll get it popped. And apparently I like <laughs> stuff. We'll I can't do kids, but I, I wear a diaper. What you need? What you need? I don't have pride. I have needs, okay? <laughs> I need some money. I got some family with debt. Sorry, uh, I was going That's fine. It's amazing
0: how quickly we give up our scruples and are willing to just do whatever we need to do to,
1: you
0: know. Scruples? Some of
1: y'all are still counting the rupees, okay? We need to <laughs> cut this out. Cut this out. So... She has to code switch between who she is and who she and who she has to portray herself as. She, If she's thriving, if she, when she's home and she's cooked the meals for her kids and they're free and they're running around and she don't got to worry about, oh, it's Saturday morning. I don't got to go back to work till Monday. It's a free feeling. Everyone in the community is safe. You get to go outside. The kids are playing. We're going to have a cookout and whatever. You know, you have your regular community things in that mindset a lot of black america i grew up learning that that's how white people grow up that's how everyone that wasn't black everyone that wasn't a, a little darker than the paper bag um that's how they lived with this this kind of freedom to live whoever they are and the only thing that they ever worried about was kind of embarrassing themselves too much mm. seriously this is how i grew up thinking well not so much grew up thinking but remember that, that school i told you i went to they made it clear to us that that mindset is what happens when you don't, serve, when you're not starving, mm. when you've moved out of starvation, when you moved out of survival mode. Because even if you're living in a penthouse and you're a school principal, you may be surviving, right? You're, you're doing well, but you also know if you lose that job, you slip to starvation really, really fast. Now, if you're one of the Bezoses, you're a Clinton, a Bush. You know, if you're a former president of the United States, a former prime minister, if you're someone like that, you're living in the, the Thrive area. You could be whoever you want. You could be a Dennis Rodman. Mm-hmm. You could be a Michael Jackson. You could own an island. You could be one of these these mega-million-dollar preachers that say whatever they want to. Give your donations. The Lord wants you to give. The Lord needs you to give a million dollars. Because my jet needs yeah, you know, the, $5 million the, the there prosperity in gospel stuff drives me nuts. It it does in a way. It is useful for, an and it's useful as an antidepressant. Um, I, I can get into that, but that, I I know, well, say, well, my I wife, my wife,
0: speaker. I'm biased because my wife's a pastor and she she like I I understand what you're saying, but on the other side, like one of the things that. If you're not careful with antidepressants or, or let me just, I would say not antidepressants. I would say it's, I would say it's more like candy. Like this, if you're constantly convincing yourself of something and there's no there there, then you're just taking empty calories. in. And especially as it pertains to religion, those folks who are saying, you know, selling you their book from the pulpit, they're fleecing you. They're, they're, they're not using that to like run soup pa- soup kitchens and food pantries. And they're not using exactly. it to deal with systemic racism. They're using it to buy a jet. Okay. And like so no matter how it makes you feel, how your feelings are being monetized for someone else's benefit is incredibly dangerous. And,
1: and I've been the minister for at least 15 years. Mm-hmm. A long time. Um, I'm talking about marriage counseling... Baby blessings, which (laughs) let's have a conversation about transubstantiation, like the whole gambit of it. Mm -hmm. And I've learned that religion has a very powerful effect on the psychosomatic parts of your of your body, parts of you that because you believe in it, they can manifest in real time in your body. Mm -hmm. I've seen that happen time and time again. I've also seen it happen way outside the church without the name of Jesus ever being called. Right. Why? Because it's a human's experience and some humans need the rigidity of religion because mm-hmm. they don't know how to compartmentalize or decompartmentalize the who they are from the who that they're trying to be or the who they're portraying. Um, I
0: mean, I have that sometimes. I mean, that's one of the reasons, that's one of, when I go to see my wife work, it's mm-hmm. one of the reasons I go is to sort of use that hour to to detach from distractions and sort of check i mean i like the 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 communion with people i like the self i like the sort of recite recitation recitation of things and you know doing things as a group but i also like it as a time to just be like where is my bullshit like i'm gonna sit for an hour and try to find my own bs and and sometimes i sit there for an hour and i find nothing and i'm like well i know i didn't look i didn't look very hard (laughs) you know um, but then some days I sit there and, and I think, truth, but some days I sit there and I really am like, oh yeah, this thing I thought, I thought, I, I actually don't believe that anymore. You know, and that it helps me. That's what, that's how church helps me.
1: That's why I always, anytime that someone is having this experience that you're having, where you, where you find a practical, personal, involved, active use for the church, I always remind people that all of the gurus all of the buddhists all of the deep monks all of the esoterics you know they have done this one specific thing where they go alone to their sacred space jesus goes and heals the sick all right guys i'll be back goes into the wilderness for 40 days Mm -hmm. sleeping on a boat i know i'm not gonna die till i'm like 33 i'm still only 32 He's still on the boat, both going crazy. He said, i whatever, I'm just going to go back to sleep. Jesus, we're dying. He gets up, wipes the book out of his eye. Yo, shut up. I'm trying to sleep. Please be still. goes back to sleep. What does he do after? As soon as he gets off the boat, can't even get off the boat long enough. He goes in, the guy living in the cemetery, that's beating himself with like, he likely has autism and they're chaining him um, up. So he's just having a tantrum constantly because you chained up someone with autism. Jesus walks to him and he's like, oh snap what's up Holmes? stands up straight runs it to him and everything's fine what to do after i need to take a break guys <laughs> it's this need of spirit it's like confusion i have to rethink what i'm doing here and then take a break to make it actually set in that is the real reason behind religion behind any any spirituality that turns into a life practice Mm -hmm. it's to see the craziness of life try something and try something that's not just what you think you know try something really divine put who you are to work instead of what you know what you know can get you some results but the thing that's going to get you the result is when you become who you are so it's a very esoteric thing to talk about, but we all know what it feels like, mm-hmm. right? That's why you start talking about how it makes you feel and where you can sit down and check your own bullshit. That aspect of knowing where you are weak and know, by your own standard and knowing where you are strong, again, by your own standard, is the way that we become more divine. Mm-hmm. Some people are afraid of this idea of becoming like, oh, you're trying to be like God. No God. God is already everywhere. So what I'm trying to do is re- just connect to this thing that's everywhere. Mm-hmm. If they saw it that way, they become all of a sudden they become so docile. They become less less aggravated. Mm-hmm. But God's in the gay guy, in the black guy. He's in. He's in the Nazi. Mm-hmm. Okay. He's in the Confederate. He's in Attorney General Barr. He's in Trump. He, he, they, it. It's just as animating to them as it is to me. So when you start thinking about what's really different, like, why is this person this way? Why don't they understand where's their empathy, right? Where's their love? Where's their, where's their mind? Yeah. You have to start considering that the the thing that animates all of us, the thing that's really powerful about all of us is indiscriminate. It just turns us on. (laughs) It does not give a shit Mm -hmm. what we do with it. It just turns us on. The meaning of life is to do something with it. Right. For some people, they sit on the couch. They do nothing. And, and and sometimes that works because sometimes they're a good example. They become part of a growing statistic. What does that statistic say? People that sit on the couch and do nothing all their lives develop these diseases. Right. Now someone like you and someone like me is like, hmm, I want to sit on my ass all day long. What's the worst that can happen? Then you see supersize me. And you're like, fuck that. I'm going to get up and walk around my house seven times. Right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean— uh... so, you know, look at the world that way just do not become another trump you don't look at the world that way we look like oh we got to fight the trumps wait 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 first identify what made well
0: because and, and again but sorry to interrupt but i but i i look at somebody like trump the same way that i look at somebody like slavery in march of 1619 like trump is not somebody that is like it, there's not like a row of presidents at target that you just go in and you're like oh, I'm going to yeah. pick that one it's like okay yes in a sense that's what happened we picked trump but him being who he is is a result of you know march many many, many, many. march 3rd 1949 when he was born okay. or whatever it is and he comes out and his dad says something to him and then march 2nd or march 4th his dad says another thing to him and then march 5th his dad actually okay. doesn't allow black people to rent any of his buildings and then march 6th thank you it's like all of these things and so when we're turning coney island into a piece of shit so when i look at when we look at people like donald trump i'm just like he was a baby but, and and he was turned now again i'm not an evolutionary geneticist or biologist well, but but on some level and no. i think that does play into stuff but I, on some level he was taught this slowly over a long period of time he's a we are all systems all of us are systems True. And he is a particular system that was built by putting one incentive. grain, one grain of hate on the pile every day of his life, and here we are now. No,
1: we are- no, we got to be careful. Look, look, I mean, we have to be careful. Why? We have to be careful. Okay. What, what was that? Where was I? What was I not careful with? I'm just curious. The, the hatred. Sometimes it's not. Remember, it's more. I, in my experience, I've found that when you. Have deep discussion with racist people, with people that come across hateful. When you have discussion with them outside of their trigger, it actually is difficult to find the hatefulness. It's difficult to find the racism. You move outside of that trigger. You don't let them see someone of melanin. All of a sudden, they're actually a regular person. For instance, I've seen this before where I'm either the only black guy in a group of musicians, my music composition, (laughs) the many composers there were in the 90s. Um, Early 2000s? In Brooklyn College. (laughs) This piece in Russian. um, You you kind of get accustomed to people seeing you as like, oh, you're the cool guy. So, you know, you come with, you come with like culture and and Mm -hmm. stuff. and They come with their like, I've been studying the piano for 27 years and I'm 26. (laughs) You know, you got to kind of like combat that somewhere in the mix of that, you learn that the things that they would normally hold against other black people, other people of color, other curvy and people, they wouldn't necessarily hold against you. If they've been forced to see you outside of their trigger, uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie. It's a movie of a black police de- um, deputy that acts like a white black clan member. Ends up oh, befriending. yeah. yeah. I think the black Klansman or something, right? Yes. And the way that he was able to do that is to approach the issue outside of its trigger. You are merely triggered by the way that I sound or the way it could be the dialect that I speak and it could be just the way that I look. If you connect to me outside of that trigger, and then you see me, it confuses your trigger. It actually will will make you hesitate to pull it. Then the more that you know me, the less likely that that trigger will happen. All reformed racists have the same exact MO. They grow up, I grew up learning this thing this way. I have the same exact thing that you're saying. Their environment kind of inculcates into them, and they become normalized to this this unspoken of rule that's sometimes very blatantly spoken about in private or in mm-hmm. public, and then they grow up just normalizing it inside. They have these ideas. Well, when I was 13, we had this, this guy that stole a pen from my father's house. It was a really expensive pen, so now black people steal. Now I don't trust black people. That's the kind of thing that happens, and I kind of just, I have a, I have an example of the thing I've been indoctrinated into, so now it's, it's evidence. Mm-hmm evidence of my indoctrination wendy and wendy and william were holding hands now Wendy's pregnant mama mama said if you hold hands you get pregnant i'm never holding nobody's hands right they get that kind of thing when they're like six and seven Mm -hmm. then they grow up their whole life having an aversion to being casually affectionate well but but that's that's
0: that's my point about trump though like every day
1: of his life but it was hatred what's that but, being, but is it being fed hatred that's why I, I think if why you tell your tell your white friends to be careful that they're not making their friends hateful or they're not teaching their children hatred they will not understand you Ye- even if you use the word bias it makes it seem like you think i'm not smart enough to know when i'm being biased the trick to it is to tell them be careful of what you are showing is different what are you saying is different because if I've had this argument, I am not racist. I am not racist, but you won't. But you're angry at your daughter for being with the black guy. No, it's not that he's a black guy. You know, I don't know what kind of job he's going to make. I don't. He said to go through a list of like these are all things you think about because he's black, mm-hmm. and he can't. He, he couldn't put the the two together. So we ran an experiment. After like two months, I said, you know. Bring another guy to the house. Bring a white guy to the house and see you have a response. Then all of a sudden, his reaction was a lot more benign. He sat down and talked to the guy. Mm-hmm. What is that telling you? He's He doesn't see his disdain for one group over the other as being racist. In his mind, he's protecting his daughter. You got you see what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. That, totally. That, that's the same shit that happens in the black community. We are. I'm extremely racist. Are you kidding me? I went to school and actually read the history books. I, I paid attention. I live in Crown Heights with a high population of Hasidic Jews. Mm-hmm. You, racism, discrimination, bigotry. I once had a group of three, you, you see the pen, stand at the corner, and because the the, the, the bell, there's like an a alarm that goes off that tells them, sun is down, or it's around this time that they should stop you know, they have to observe their their, their religious observance of not working. Mm-hmm. It's a Sabbath. Um, where they stopped me and asked me to carry their bags. Mm-hmm. Now, I want you to think about how this sounds in the year 2019. Mm-hmm. To have me carry three Jewish men's bags home. Mm-hmm. Right. So I just put my headphones back in and kept walking. Um. I've done it before for older Jewish men, old, like the old, like these old ladies that got the cart. Can you help me with it? Yes. I'm going to walk you 17 blocks. I'm going to put you in an Uber. I've done all of that. When you're older, when you're older, because I've already learned to normalize this person. may die today. Help them. <laughs> well, I, think, I, I, see old.
0: I think when I get when I when I when I talk about Trump as being this like. There, it's a it's an every human being is an accumulation of everything like your genetics, Indeed. your your environment, your family, everything your experience, the grades you get in school, and how you think about those things like all of that stuff matters. And I just, I, I,
1: so you realize you've been moving people's lives for
0: a couple of years, huh? And I, and I just, for <laughs> me, I just, I, I, I get really it scares me when people are reductive about other people, even people like Donald Trump, and they're just like, Donald Trump is x y and z and so therefore it's like because it's easy it makes you feel better to be like it makes more sense if donald trump is this like crystalline perfect emperor palpatine that we took off the shelf and he was installed as president it's like nope he was a baby who was taught a lot of things and had a lot of life experiences that made him think the way he thinks now he had an alcoholic brother who died because his dad was abusive to his brother so let's talk but they don't about know that. anything about that. but, let's, but like ask yourself, how rational would you see the world if your dad was abusive to your brother, he drank himself to death? Now you don't drink anything other than diet Coke as a result of that? No coffee, no alcohol, no nothing. Like, nothing. He doesn't drink yeah. caffeine and alcohol, not because he's a weird guy. It's because his brother died a horrible death of alcoholism, and he's scarred. I mean, this so idea
1: he doesn't want any kind of
0: stimulants, any kind of anything that would enter his body that way. But like this idea that we see him as this profoundly unhealthy person, but we look at his lack of drinking as sort of like we don't see like it's just I don't know. I just reductivism is is um, it's exhausting to me. And 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 I'm I I, I want to pivot here real quick because I got one final question. I know sure. you got you got to get going here, um, but I wanted to touch on this because he's come up in my mind a lot since. The pandemic lockdown happened. I posted the other day that like Mark Brooks was the last person I shook hands with like mm-hmm. and I don't know how if you if you've thought about the last person you shook hands with or hugged um, when the pandemic happened, and maybe we've all had different experiences in shaking and hugging people recently, but you mean like right before they were like shut everything off right before it became apparent we shouldn't be shaking hands, Mark and I shook hands and it's it really burned it was really in my my memory that moment imprinted on me. But I. But shortly thereafter, Dougie passed away. And all of a sudden sure. now, I was starting to see... I was forced to deal with what I thought a community was because everything... My entrance point to the community was Dougie. And Ken, I mean, Kendall first, but Dougie was the sort of father figure of the community that opened the door for me. Right. Now he's gone because of COVID-19. And it's every couple days i start to have these moments of anxiety where i think like i know what dougie was doing on a daily basis and how encouraging he was to people like you and damani and kendall and and other folks who came through and i really i know we only got like 10 or 15 minutes here buddy before you got to run but what for you has like and i I spoke with dr don batson the other day um and Uh it was just what what for you is the thing? I I kind of I worry that Dougie's legacy and the work that Dougie did. I don't worry that it's that it's not going to be carried on in a beautiful way in some way, but I just worry that his existence is like poof, gone. And there's just so much chaos right now that like the due I think he's deserving of in terms of just a like calling balls and strikes of the the doors he held open for people and creating crossfire, the environment he created for not just students but yourself arrangers damani and kendall to have this experience i'm curious for you what if you've had time to think about it what are some of the things you've just been thinking about um after dougie passed and sort of what the last six months of chaos have sort of where's your head been with that because my head's been spinning a little bit and i'm
1: just kind of curious because you were closer to dougie than me um dougie (laughs) dougie and i have a very strange kind of relationship so Dougie, I don't want to say he was using me, but Dougie came to me for advice, basically. So there'd be days where Dougie's sitting in a councilman's office, and then the councilman's like, All right, um, if you want me to, to work on this project for you, you got to have to bring me some some representative of a band to speak to. i got to make sure this is not this is some legit stuff. So I'd be in a situation where Dougie comes into the school and they call my desk, <laughs> they call my desk phone. I like I tell one of the students to answer the phone. For me, I never answer the phone. I try not to ever answer the phone. I'm mm-hmm. teaching. My job is too important to answer the mm-hmm. damn phone. Um, they answer the phone. Hey, it's somebody from the front desk. Somebody at the front desk. Who is it? Your father. Father. Okay. So then I kind of just go back to teaching. All right, go back. You know, and then Dougie would walk into the room. So for like the first year, everyone thought that Dougie was my father. Did he just lie? Did he just lie when he walked <laughs> no. to the school or what? When the woman came in, I, when the woman came in, I said, um she, her name is uh Melissa. She's a like she was a, a desk manager at the time. She was more than a desk manager. She was like the school glue holding this school together that no one knew, you know, that person. So she comes, she's like, Hey, how about your dad? I was like so I said, Yeah, dad and he just he just to do with this with this kind of like <laughs> Yeah. Hands so on his belly him. like he does. So I asked him, like, why did you tell them that you were my father? She said, "I didn't say that." When she, uh, when I asked for you, um, the front desk person looked and said, "Are you Quent's father?" And he said, "Oh, I wish." So that kind of just stuck. Oh, got it. Okay. Um, yeah. So I just kind of like, I'm not gonna hold this against you. Flashpoint: when my actual father came in, my short, my five foot nine dark-skinned. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> a freaking father comes inside. Then they're like, you're Quint, you're Mr. Rose's dad. And he smiles. And we have like that same big-jawed bright. So he's just like, he's like, oh, yeah. Wait a minute. So who is that other guy? I feel like, like you have other you guy. have more teeth than
0: most human beings, Kendall. Or uh, <laughs> Quentin. I feel like you just have, nope. you, you have like four more than the rest no. of us
1: do. No, bro. I actually have had many removed. Okay. I like sugar. I used to. <laughs> I just had to get a root canal on this one. I just have a good dentist. You don't even see it. Oh, yes. This is all down crazy. But um, his passing hit me kind of sideways. Um, I definitely spent a few days not eating and crying and doing stupid things and, you know, channeling. Where in the universe are you? What the hell did you do, Dougie? What is the problem? Um, You know, you try to go through those kind of transcendental meditations. to Where are you left? Are, Are you suffering here? And after a while, I had a. Now, mind you, when I have dreams, they're either in my head to just make me sleep, to just calm me down, or they're in my head because they're real. And he, I remember where we, were, we were standing somewhere and we were looking like empty racks or something. And it was a very brief thing where I stood in front of all of the empty racks and I knew he had walked up next to me because Dougie just has a weird. We, we always tell each other these weird jokes that only we would laugh at. And he pulled off one of those weird jokes and I laughed and I didn't even look, Oh, you know, when you like, you look over to acknowledge the person's there. And that was it. And that was like the end of the dream. That was the end of like the visit. Um, the, the holes that Dougie left. I say that to say he let me into a lot. Uh, very delicate information about what was happening almost all the time, text messages. I sometimes wake up and find like, why do I have Whiteca tax reports? <laughs> like, yeah, he would send me like, he, you know, he sent me one time an email string between Whiteca reps and um, USSA about money and meeting times and all kinds of stuff. Crazy stuff that later on, I saw some of those same letters end up in that um, scathing report about Whiteca a couple of months ago. Welcome. So, one of the places that I knew he was working with was the Brooklyn arts council. Luckily I was kind of the liaison. So I was able to to preserve that relationship with the Brooklyn arts council as they're kind of like folklore. That's what the word or folk culture Mm -hmm. liaison to the Caribbean community. So anytime that they have grants and things, they come and shoot them over to me. And then I have to present them to the group when it comes to like U S S a currently Tony, who is the captain and band leader of Metro which is a band from back in you know back when there was like 9 97 bands in brooklyn um he's currently taking the, the helm in some way um when it comes to crossfire damani is working with the steel band and they're figuring out a way to work with the family to deal with that cuz you know When things are written in your name, that means you may also have things like debt from renting multiple utilities and all kinds of things to pay off. So they want to make sure that that doesn't become a ticklish point in their relationship. Um, The hard thing is, like the relationship with politicians. Those are the things with local government. Those things, I don't know. How to salvage really? Because people don't realize that a lot of permitting was allowed. Dougie was allowing himself to be an example to other you know, to like the city, like, hey, 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 I've rented here. This is my friend, he coming here. He's gonna come here later on today to ask for a permit for something. You gotta let right. him get he, through. He with greased this. the skids a little bit for folks. The man was it was a it was a piece of bacon. Okay. Well he also grease. I mean
0: I mean, I just want to sort of reiterate what you're saying. Like he, his involvement in the community, not just his direct community, but like like you said, with politicians, outreach, those sorts of things. Yeah. I mean, his and and he did that in Trinidad too. I remember the, like BSO went down to Trinidad the and the yeah, for mm-hmm. ICP, and it was like last minute something fell through, and Dougie and Junior, like Dougie hooked up with Junior, who's also a politician, um, and the two yeah. of them, like Dougie was the facilitator. He was the reason. Yeah. that BSO landed in Skipple. And then like that networking on his end is why I ended up meeting Junior, why Kendall Mark and Odie have arranged for Skipple Bunch for five years now going on strong and keep getting asked back and why my students have got, I mean, all of that is because Dougie, Dougie doesn't, Doug, Dougie didn't sit around and like, well, somebody else will make this happen. He just, no, really did it no, and, no, 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 uh, no.
1: One of the weird things is that when I got into Crossfire it was during one of their, Serious rebuilding phases. The band had had a lot of like in fighting, you know, people hmm. too much porn going on and all kind of thing. So people were having their conflicts, and the rangers were back and forth. And he was having conflicts with how things were being managed because it takes it costs a lot of money, hmm. and the people that are trying to help him are kind of stealing from him. One moment that kind of changed the way I understood Dougie was that he had made the band. He started the band and. 1999 maybe I can't remember exactly but he started the band however long ago and some point through the course of the band the board that he had elected or helped to elect to set up the band tried to replace him as the leader of the band Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I asked him well how did you deal with that and he explains to me how he one by one got them to turn on each other now hearing this from him was interesting only because I'm like I don't know if you realize this is not the good thing you want to tell to a young arranger at this time it was like 25 mm-hmm. yeah it was like 24 25 um 23 maybe um, just like squirrely out of school mm-hmm. um, so I'm like why is he te- why is he being this vulnerable to tell me that he's willing to break up how he broke up this group like systematically how, who he told what to and he didn't lie He didn't lie. He would do things like withhold a piece of the truth for a certain amount of time. Mm. Something that they didn't ask, he wouldn't say, things like that. And I'm looking at it like, why would he tell me this, though? And it was in that moment that I realized he was trying to find someone to be vulnerable with. And he was looking for someone to share, like, this is how you do it. Like, I need someone that's receptive to know how to do these things. And he's always wanted to give the secrets away. Um, What's unfortunate is in the Brooklyn Pan community, there's a lot of paranoia. The paranoia is brought about mostly from the starvation mentality where they see somebody get something and assume that the reason that they got it was by not giving some of it to someone else. Mm. So I got 10, I got a book, I got a, a bag of corn, Um, I got my bag of corn, but because I'm the leader of the U.S.S.A., it should have been my responsibility to give everybody a piece of corn because I had a bag of corn. What they forgot was that the leader of the U.S.S.A. is just a spokesperson. So that bag of corn was for Crossfire. You you work towards getting something, and Mm -hmm. they, they didn't work towards getting it. But that's the kind of thing that started to happen with everyone that became a U.S.S.A. president that your job is not to help your own band, it's to help every band. So unless they were doing things that were moving eight or nine bands of people at once that were benefiting large swaths of people, it wasn't considered legitimate. So some of the Brooklyn community became distrusting of Doug. Why? You tell a bunch of people you're very sensitive fans, plans, plans, what do you think is going to happen? Someone's going to be a saboteur. Someone's going to talk too much. Someone's going to... Feel like, no, you shouldn't have it. So I'm going to block you from doing it. That's the mm-hmm. actual thing I've seen. I've been on phones with people. Like, I'm not, I'm on speakerphone listening to them talk about how they're trying to sabotage the band. Mm-hmm. Listen, boy, I know the man trying to rent you the yard. Like, I tell him they have all kind of parties. And think, nah, I don't want them to have the yard. I don't like you. Seriously, that's the kind of thing that they would do. And I would be on speakerphone when the guy, yeah, yeah, right. I'll call you back. Quinty, guess that? I was like, "Damn! All right, I'll let Dougie know." Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of thing he would he would laugh at, and you'd go tell Dougie, and Dougie would make some joke. He'd say, "You know, that's Oshun." You know, mm-hmm. Dougie was versed in like things of like Orisha tradition and all of that. So he would say, "Like, yeah, yeah, yeah," you know how Oshun is, and then he would laugh. That laugh, yeah. that damn laugh. Well, I, you know, one of the
0: th- the thing. My wife is a pastor, as I mentioned, and she's spent some time with people who have gotten sick or have had to die, and during Corona and the thing that breaks my heart the most about just the circumstances around when Dougie had to pass was being lonely. And I still to this, like, you know, Dougie was never lonely. He was never by himself. There was always somebody whether it be with his you know Unless he wanted to be. Unless he wanted to be. But mm-hmm. but like his wife with the, the food in the yard, um everybody yeah, like he yeah, built yeah, he yeah. built a community around him and just the idea that it ended being alone is just the heart like to me, like that's I'm not being rational about it. Like I know Dougie was never really alone, but like it it hurt. It sucks. I, I don't know how to like think about that stuff. But I will say this, Quent, I I think Dougie I'm just going to challenge you a little bit here, and then I'll let you go. I think Dougie's Mm -hmm. not wrong about you being a good politician, and I think there's a hole there. (laughs) And I would say I would lobby for you to pick up that that mantle and run with it because it's 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 important work, truly important work. It has to be done by somebody. It needs to be done well, and you are a very thoughtful
1: person. And um, you you lead. Too much. What's that? I don't. The idea of decorum, like when I know someone's deflecting, you. But, I'm going to be the radical one. You like, don't, no, no, you just just curse everybody out. But you can. <laughs> but I
0: think the one thing I, I think Dougie did is he figured it out in his own way. Um, when you say, "Come here, I want to show you how it's done," I think he wanted yeah. to show you how he figured it out, and I think you. Yeah. He chose you in some weird way because he knew you would figure it out in your own way. You don't need to be the politician Dougie yeah. was. Dougie didn't Dougie had a lot of decorum and could sort of like dance around issues. And if you can't Yeah. He if he thought that was a deal breaker for you, he wouldn't have talked to you in that way. And true. so I would say I would say you should not use it as a superpower. Use your lack of decorum as a superpower and go in there and <laughs> and if you can if you can use your little pickaxe and and knock loose a shitload of money, money for the pan scene. Um, I think your time will be well spent. But uh, man, that's just my my advice to you as a friend, challenging you. I think um, you could you
1: could do some. You're, good work. you're the third person since this pandemic started to
0: tell me this exact same thing. Well, then take it as data points that you you quent as a wise person should probably look at as data points that you should look at. Um, buddy, I appreciate your time. This is it's always good to talk with you and. I don't know that we solved anything, but I learned something, and that's kind of all I care about. So, thank you. Um, safe travels out there. And tell the castle you're going to rehearse with Chasm right now?
1: Um, That was yesterday or the day before. That was one of those days. I think they're going to rehearse again today. Okay. They're trying to do some, some recording. And Lance wants me to participate, you know.
0: Yeah, well this do, do me a favor and tell them I said hello and then I miss everybody there dearly and they'll all roll their eyes and it's fine. But just tell them <laughs> tell them um, I, I miss them all dearly and, and thanks thanks again Absolutely. for your time. Buddy. Thanks, man. All right, take it easy. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum. LiquidDrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, My good friend Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch, great content. Check them out. LiquidDrum.com Also, Kyle Dunleavy, DunleavyPans.com D-U-N-L-E-A-V-YPans.com Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on uh, in so percussion as well as at NYU and Princeton. Uh, He's an amazing, amazing tuner builder, um, just a really nice guy, very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, want to learn more about the goings-on in pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check them out. And finally, Alejandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan centric. You can check him out at Mango Chow, C H O W, clothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out. Mango Chow Clothing.com. Okay, hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Bye.